there's just a lot of misinformation in the hospital and healthcare system community about how to hire us and that we are professionals, not technicians. When they hire us as professionals, they can capture data, metrics, and money differently than if they hire us as technicians. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological. The original Complete Idiot's Guide to Keeping Your Volkswagen Alive was a beautifully illustrated, thoughtfully written manual. With that book, I indeed kept my VW bus alive for many, many miles. More than mechanics, it was about mindset. That book was an invitation into thinking, observing, and thoughtful action. It made car mechanics an exploration, and in many ways, it was teaching that mastery was not about knowing, but about being able to discover something of importance in the moment. Mastery is partially about knowing, having a library of experience that is readily available so you can quickly and reliably move through a diagnostic process because the terrain is familiar. And when something is out of place, it then stands out in a notable way. It might look like you're skipping steps, But it's more that you speak the pattern language so well that it's easy to see where to apply more attention. That the question marks shift from being a source of consternation to the X on a treasure map that says, dig here. Mastery is woven together from intelligence, experience, a healthy portion of curiosity, along with an uncanny ability to stay in the present moment. It arises from having experience, but not being blinded from what you think you know. It involves a well-won sense of confidence that lacks ego, that allows you to stay present with being completely wrong, so you can start again with the diagnostic process without self-recrimination or anxiety. Masters, like true scientists, are as open to a no as to a yes to being wrong as they are to being right. Having the answer is of less importance than the road traveled to that answer. Mastery is more fluid than static. It's about having enough experience and knowledge that you can engage the unknown with a steady heart, of having the capacity to observe clearly, think quietly without the intrusion of anxiety, and leave some space for discovery. Mastery allows us to recognize the beginning and ending of things and thus align ourselves with the deep currents of natural flow. It takes years beyond those spent in school to think and see the world through the lenses and prisms of Chinese medicine. It takes time to adjust our perception and reactions to the principles of yin-yang five phases in the six G. It takes time because the world of Chinese medicine is not the same as the world that we grew up in. Likewise, working with large organizations like governments, the military, or hospitals requires an understanding of those worlds. And if you don't have experience in those domains, it is rather like entering a foreign country. In this conversation with Megan Kingsley Gale, we discuss how she came to creating the Hospital Handbook Project for Acupuncturists. This project grew from her passion to bring our medicine to places where the benefits of acupuncture 
have not been previously utilized. She has a keen organizational sense and desire not just to see our profession included in healthcare for veterans and in hospitals in general, but also for helping those who would like to work in these environments. In a moment, we will learn more about this fantastic resource to which she has devoted much time. And if you're interested in working in a hospital or with a governmental agency, then you're going to thoroughly enjoy this episode. These geological conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Need to fill up the appointments created by late cancellations? Jane can help with that problem. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, listen for a special offer from Andrew Sturman on Diet as Medicine and the folks at Blue Poppy share some thoughts on the safety of herbal medicine. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit mayway.com to find the perfect plum flower brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore whenever you need a break. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies, and enjoy bits of Chinese culture. This month, we're focusing on the treatment of various skin concerns like itchy skin and stubborn acne. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our skin health formulas this month too. Just visit Meiwei.com. This season and every season, trust Meiwei for your health and wellness needs. And as always, thanks for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. Change is never easy. This is evidenced by the fact that the scales weighing the number of people on the green side of change versus the number of people on the old, hard-on-the-planet ways of doing things are still way out of balance. Our planet is suffering, but our profession has an easier way to shift the scales. The founders of AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles started with a great needle and then created our industry's first eco-friendly packaging and reusable accessories. They also give back to nature by planting trees. I encourage you to challenge yourself to make the change. Ride the wave of spring yang chi and make the switch by joining me and the multitude of colleagues who made the change. Now you can celebrate Earth Month in April with pride knowing that you're helping us to tip the scales of planetary health towards a greener, healthier, and healing planet. Visit www.acufastneedles.com to get on board. You've probably already heard me here on the podcast share about Jane, my favorite all-in-one practice management software that helps you to run your practice online and manage no-shows. The team at Jane understands that life happens, and sometimes that means your patients are unable to make their scheduled appointment. If that's the case, a quick and easy way to fill those unexpected gaps in your day is by utilizing Jane's time-saving waitlist management features. 
you can take advantage of automated SMS text or email notifications to notify eligible waitlisted patients that there's an opening so they can easily scoop up in available time. If you know you're ready to sign up, you can mention the show or use the code CHEOLOGICAL for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. Visit jane.app to get started today. Learning to think organizationally does not come naturally for most of us. But if you want to swim in those waters, you'll need a map and a guide. Let's get into this conversation with Megan about how you can work your way into bringing acupuncture into the group care context of a hospital. Megan Kingsley-Gale, welcome to Geological. Thank you. I am honored to be here. Thank you for inviting me. I feel so lucky to have you here. You have been doing some interesting stuff with acupuncture and hospitals. Mm -hmm. It wasn't that long ago that the word acupuncture and hospital, they would not be found in the same paragraph, let alone same sentence. Yes. I have worked in, in hospitals both as a volunteer and then also as a paid employee. And it's been this process <laughs> in my lifetime. And I'm not the first person to work in hospitals but I am the first person to really try to bring the community together to have a gathering place to talk about things. We don't have to do this alone. How did you first get involved with hospitals? Was it before you did acupuncture or how did that happen? I've always been interested in working in hospitals. I have a couple of uncles who are physicians working in hospitals and other people that I know say, when I was an undergrad, I would shadow physicians and I really like primary care. Mm -hmm. I didn't really like that some of the things that we had to deal with in primary care. And one of them was like, we have lots of ways to treat emergency stuff, but it's great. Like if I'm in a car crash, I go to the emergency room, they will save my life. But things like arthritis, there must be something over the course of history that we have developed a medicine for that works more than, say, ibuprofen, that doesn't have the side effects of some of these medications. And through a roundabout way, found acupuncture and learned about acupuncture and applied to acupuncture graduate school. And I went to Bestier University. Oh, out in Seattle. Yeah. So I graduated from there in 2006. So I did the acupuncture and the Chinese herb program. We had shifts in hospitals. They're almost outpatient shifts. But so I was always interested in working in hospitals. And my uncles who are physicians were like, when you're done with that, come work with us back home. And oh, wow. I'm from Minnesota because they really, they like how they saw me work with people and work with patients. And they said, well, we will learn about how this acupuncture thing works. But it, it sounds because you're going through school and I'm talking about how excited I am about how acupuncture works. And I have one of my grandmothers, she had 11 children and she treated her kids with measles without, well, she's on a farm. Like, so she treated all these kids through all these different things. So she knew how to take care of people without having access to the modern medical system. And so she had kind of gotten me interested in other ways that why does chicken soup work so well? Okay. So that's a great question. Why does chicken soup work so well? Oh, I don't have all the answers, but why don't we study it? I mean, research, like you don't see a lot of research dollars going toward 
chicken soup, but isn't in Chinese medicine, that warm broth in, helps the yin and the, the bone broth. And there's just so many things about that and the like wei chi and ying chi. And that should be a great thing that's studied. Like why does it chicken soup work so well? Yeah. Well, you know, we call it Jewish penicillin. Oh. <laughs> so you had this grandmother who ostensibly knew how to take care of people without a medical system because there's no medical system on the farm. You kind of have some folk medicine, some common sense, and I don't know, some kind of something that you get because you're living out a little closer to nature, perhaps. And then you've got these uncles who are in the medical system. Mm -hmm. And that not only got you started, but then later when you came back, your uncles welcomed you into that world that often acupuncturists or kind of looked askance at? Oh, so I have yet to be able to work with my uncle. So when I graduated from Bastyr, two months before that, I married my husband, who's in the who's in the U.S. Navy. Right now, he's a U.S. Navy Master Chief Petty Officer. We got married, I finished school, and then I moved out to Hampton Roads, Virginia to be with him. And so mm-hmm. that has been an adventure. Like He's at this point, we're 24 years of service. So I've never been home to Minnesota to work with my family. I've just been moving from one place to another. So so before I started acupuncture school, I had volunteered at Naval Hospital of Bremerton in family practice. I just volunteered like where they needed me. And I told them, hey, you know, I got accepted to acupuncture school. And they're like, huh, that's interesting. Come back and tell us about it. And then in the military system, everybody moves every couple of years. So by the time I came back, they, was it, they had been moved somewhere else. So when I married my husband, we moved out to I met him because he was already there in Hampton Roads, Virginia, which is like Virginia Beach and Norfolk and Chesapeake. And I started volunteering as a Red Cross volunteer at Naval Medical Center Portsmouth in their wellness department. So I just helped with like their Step Well series and which is a walking program for employees. And then we did like a lunch and learn. So I helped coordinate lunch and learn between like nutrition department and physical readiness and training departments and stress management and a lot of these wellness departments, which was really cool to be able to work with the people in charge of a lot of these programs are nurse educators. They're really cool people. So the nursing profession has this wellness and prevention modality mindsets of caring for people that fits very well into how we also learn about medicine and acupuncture. So when I would start talking about what I do, they're kind of like, oh, well, that kind of fits into what we we do. So I didn't have to do acupuncture, but I could just talk about wellness and then help coordinate these things. Right. Well, you could also simply talk about Chinese medicine Mm -hmm. and the mindset and how we look at the world. And I could see how that would just dovetail right into what they're doing. Yes. So sometimes they would use quotes like from Lao Tzu about with the step wall walking program, like a thousand steps after each meal. Things that are already in our culture, but because I've been to acupuncture school, I had this other perspective that I could bring a little more depth. And then I just got to help out. So the cool thing about volunteering, is you just help where you need it and you get to learn about the culture of that particular system, but hospital culture in general, and then that particular organization. And then we had my first child in Virginia, and then we moved out to Washington State. And then just a year or two after moving back out to Washington State, I was contacted to say, hey, Megan, we're just collecting some resumes of acupuncturists. You know, send yours in. And then there was a second round where you send your resume in and apply through like USA Jobs. This is a very long process. And then I was accepted and uh, given an offer of employment at Madigan Army Medical Center. So I was their first acupuncturist 
at the Madigan Army Medical Center Interdisciplinary Pain Management Program actually started in 2012. Almost 10 years ago now. Yes, it's time. Mm-hmm. Time flies. <laughs> it does. Now, were they using acupuncture prior to you showing up there, or is it something they thought, hey, let's look at some other modalities? How did that come about? Oh, this is really cool. So some of this history I learned after I, I left, because it's, it's, it's part of this big program. And so there was the Army Pain Management Task Force. I'll try to get this information correct. So there's an Army Pain Management Task Force and with General Schoolmaker. And he got rolling this new way of doing pain management and incorporating integrative health practitioners practicing integrative medicine, whatever their different modalities are, chiropractic, yoga, licensed acupuncturists, as well as working with a physical therapist, occupational therapist, basically kind of what nowadays in workers' comp, what they call the rehabilitation, functional rehabilitation model. He was bringing in a new way of doing pain management, and there's different parts to this, but one of the parts was the creation of these interdisciplinary pain management centers. And they were set up uh, major army hospitals throughout the world. So Hawaii, Madigan, which is Tacoma, Washington State, several other sites within the U.S. and Landstuhl in Germany. And so acupuncturists were hired all these different places and as part of these teams. So it was team-based work, and then you're serving the military population in your area. So it was a pretty amazing thing to be a part of because it was in response to like the opioid epidemic and and that kind of thing. We wanted to have more non-drug pain management options available before. And this was happening on this in the military side before it kind of really exploded as a big thing on the civilian side. So that was back in like that pain management task force report. I think it was 2009 and then updated in 2011. And I started my job. I was hired in 2012. And now that kind of work has kind of morphed into, and then the VA has taken it on as the whole health program. So the VA whole health program has been consistently hiring acupuncturists uh, the last couple of years. I think there's 80 acupuncturists just hired within the last couple of years into their whole health model, which is like the new generation of what started at the Army. Yeah. Yeah. Hello, everyone. Andrew Sturman here. I've been working with clients in Chinese medicine dietary therapy for over two decades in New York City. My focus is beautiful, simple, delicious, and health-supportive home cooking. Good meals can be inspired by the strategies of classic herbal formulas so that each meal is infused with medical intention from appetizer to dessert. This requires an understanding of the energetic properties of grains, vegetables, meats, fruits, and more, and knowing which foods are moistening, drying, building, clearing, warming or cooling, as well as their directionality. I've organized these teachings in my two-volume book series, Welcoming Food, where you can learn this theory, practice it in your own kitchen, and love doing so. See the positive reviews and incredible testimonials from practitioners and patients who've brought this material into their own kitchens. Welcoming Food Books 1 and 2 can easily be found online, and if you'd like to follow me on Instagram, where I'll be posting cooking tutorials, you can find me at Welcoming Food. Back to you, Michael. Thanks very much. It seems to me, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but it seems to me that there's an awful lot of innovation that comes out of the military in terms of medicine, in terms of programs like this. I mean, I think back years ago, the military was 
really the first to integrate the races in our country. And it just seems like in, in so many places, the military is often a forerunner because they're looking for what's effective. Do I have that right or am I just making this up? I can't speak for the military, like, but I have seen them like when it comes to trauma care, like mm -hmm. the military has been way ahead on a lot of things. In my experience, one of the things that as a military dependent, which means that my husband is the service member and myself and my children use military health system, MHS, mm -hmm. and they have this continuous medical record and they've had a continuous electronic health record so we got married in 2006. So before 2006, they had this continuous electronic health record. So no matter where you move from Washington State or Virginia, Hawaii or Germany, you have the same electronic health record that follows you so that you don't have to bring your entire medical record with you and then potentially lose it. Like they just have this electronic health record. And then that's the same record like for the service member when they deploy that that corpsman, the medical people on that base or on that ship can pull that up and have that record available to them. And it's only recently that I see that happening in the civilian sector, being able to, I see this more happening more in the Midwest where these larger systems are using Epic or Cerner and getting the electronic health record systems to talk to each other so that even in a system like Mayo or Lina in Minnesota, like my relatives use that. So I hear from my family, like how that works for them. They can be seen at a small clinic but their electronic health record, then when they go to see their specialists at Mayo, then they can see what happened at the small clinic because they're sharing that. But that's a pretty new thing. And the military has been doing that for a long time. Mm -hmm. So, which I appreciate for continuation of care for myself and my kids. Yeah. So you have been working on a hospital handbook. Yes, the Hospital Handbook Project for acupuncturists and their hospital sponsors. So you want me to talk a little bit about how that came about coming from working at Madigan? Yeah, I'm super curious about this. I mean, so often in, in whatever work we do, whatever path we follow, we start off, we have some ideas, we have some interests, but we never know where it's going to take us. Mm -hmm. And often there's all kinds of serendipity and curious things that happen along the way, sometimes big troubles that happen along the way that guide us in a certain direction. And we just get a feel for, oh, this is where I belong. This is what really calls to me. And I know for myself, I'm kind of the opposite of you in a way. I have no desire to work in a hospital. It's not an area of interest to me. So I especially love talking to people who have a wildly different perspective from the one that I have. And I suspect that there are many people at this point in our profession, they're interested in integrated care, they're interested in working in a team environment like you were just talking about, and I suspect they'd be really interested in this. Yeah. So when I worked at Madigan, it wasn't just like starting as a new acupuncturist in a system, which is its own thing, but we were in doing a new form of care, working truly as like an egalitarian team. So a lot of times in healthcare, in hospitals, they talk about integrative team and kind of means like they kind of refer to each other, which is cool. But we had the same group of patients and those patients would come and see us. Sometimes there are multiple appointments within a day because it was this intensive functional rehabilitation setting. And we had a couple different programs. So like they might come to acupuncture, but then they'd also have a chiropractic yoga appointment or a health psychology appointment in the same day. And some had to spread it out more based on what their command would allow them to come and do that could work in their schedule. 
so, you know, we had the Wounded Warrior Battalion could definitely come to the more intense programs. And then worked with PT, physical therapy and occupational therapy. And then they had even a more intense program, a kind of a work hardening type program that they would also run in conjunction with the integrative modalities. And then we also did a lot of talking about how there's kind of this idea out in the Western world that acupuncture, chiropractic, and yoga, I guess acupuncture, chiropractic, and mindfulness meditation, that these are passive modalities. And so we did a lot of talking about like what I do, how do I engage patients in that care? And how do I engage them in self-care? Because it's they're laying on the table that might look passive, but it's actually there's stuff going on. I would normally be teaching them basic breathing exercises. So there's this cool thing that I noticed happening, like if patients would do like acupuncture, chiropractic, yoga, acupuncture and chiropractic was additive. Acupuncture, yoga, and the health psychology mindfulness was like synergistic, mm. like it was exponential. I know part of it was probably because we were all teaching them breathing techniques. And so when they come to me and like, oh, well, the yoga person teach, taught us this way. I'm like, yes, that's great. And they're like, and you're teaching me how to breathe. So maybe diaphragmatic, the belly breathing is good for me. I'm like, yes. And here's some other ways we can add to that. So it was really cool to see what I noticed, you know, when you're working with part of a team, when we had like time off or like a patient didn't show or before I could see patients that early time, I would try to shadow the other people on the team. Because what I noticed was just because you're a physician doesn't mean, and you've shadowed a physician doesn't mean you know how every physician works. Like it's just the way a person practices is unique to the environment they practice in, to their patient demographic, and then to them as a person. So like being able to go in and so what I rec- when people are first starting a hospital practice, I say, while they're still going through that credentialing process and that you're not allowed to see patients yet, just go in and shadow the other people on your team so you can kind of get to know how they practice what they're doing. And then that helps you re- know how what you're doing can kind of work with what they're doing and you learn their, how they communicate with their patients. And so when you're sharing patients, you have a more shared set of language. So, and we did team rounds every week and we rounded with our, about our patients and we participated in a program out of the University of New Mexico called ECHO. So an ECHO hub. So as an acupuncturist, I'd go to these meetings once a week on ECHO and we dial in as like a hub of experts to talk about pain management cases. So like the rural practitioners or private practitioners would call in about hard cases. They'd present a case study And then we'd all kind of go around like, well, have you tried acupuncture? And that would be really good for this set of things that you said your patient said. And they're like, oh, they they tried acupuncture. And then we get out like one time. I'm like, okay, actually, a course of acupuncture for this particular condition would be more than that. You can't say that acupuncture failed because they only did one treatment (laughs) one time. Yeah, a lot of education there. Yeah, so we had to do a lot of education about that. So when I started all that learning stuff in, so I started in 2012 and then end of 2013, beginning of 2014, some stuff came up about, we had been credentialed and we had a delineation of clinical privileges. We were professional practice clinicians. Something came up and they're like, well, why are you guys credentialed? You're not professionals. Like, what do you mean? Like, what is the definition for a professional? And I dove into that and I got assigned as to volunteer to lead all of my LAC acupuncturist colleagues across the IPMCs from Hawaii, across the US to Germany. And we came together to talk about what are the standards for our field for education, getting hired into the IPMCs. So things that I thought had already been done, we had to come kind of go back and be like, 
well, yes, here are the standards and here are the current standards for our education, like the ACAOM, the NCCOM board exam, and they license in your field. And then to work at the IPMC is what are the additional knowledge, skills, and abilities you need. And then we had to talk about metrics. So I had to learn like, oh, how are metrics collected in electronic health record? Because that's how when hospital administrators are pulling data, they're looking at the RVU count. RVU. Relative value units. So like CPT codes and ENM codes have different RV, a relative value unit number assigned to them. And then how that connects to documentation standards. So we had to go through documentation standards and what that looks like and uh, what the standards are and what's metrics that we're collecting in the notes so that if someone wanted to do a retrospective data poll, they could do that and what data to pull out of those notes in that system. And so we put all that together and we worked with someone in medical command who works with program metrics, a program analyst. And she looked at our stuff and said, okay, this is other things you have to do related to that. So I presented to leadership in January. So I thought it'd be one presentation. And so this was the IPMC leadership. So this is with the U.S. Army of the Surgeon General Pain Management, all the IPMC program, the medical directors, and as well as like Defense Health Agency, which is a new agency at the time, and the Integrative Health Leadership at the Veterans Health Administration. So I presented all our standards metrics for acupuncturists working in the Army, and then particular attention to how that relates to IPMC mission and all the different systems that we pull metrics from and how that relates to all these things I mentioned. And it went well. And then they had me come back and present, or at least be attending almost every week. (laughs) After that, for a few months, I had my second child. And at the end of March, so I was presenting up until I was in the hospital and (laughs) delivering the baby. And then they had me come back, was told like, you know, you should still keep doing this. So I was on maternity leave. I kept, they had me keep coming into those meetings and presenting different aspects of it. So it sounds like you were actually doing some very groundbreaking work. Yes. Not something, something that I thought someone else would do a better job at. Well, and it also sounds like it was work that you thought had already been done. And then it turns out, no, it's not done. Hey, there's a, there's a deficiency here. We need to do this. Yes. And you step in, not knowing that you had capacity, but it turns out you have capacity. I mean, it sounds to me like you understand acupuncture. You understand something of the military. You understand something of a hospital system. And here's the thing that is most interesting. You have this knack or ability to tie together and work with teams. When you first were talking about the work as a egalitarian group, I don't think you said this directly, but what I was imagining is that you not only need to know the work that you do, you not only need to kind of understand the work other people do, but you have to understand how to connect with all those different kinds of colleagues. Mm-hmm. That is, I mean, most acupuncturists are happy to work in their little clinic in kind of lone wolf status. And here you are weaving all these different threads together. Mm -hmm. Now, when this group wanted you not just to present, but to be in attendance for all these different meetings that they had, what were they leaning on you for? It sounds like you were playing an important role. What was that role? Well, the title they gave me, and this was volunteer, like I would do this early in the morning once a week because I was on the West Coast and most people were on the East Coast, the leaders. And 
then I would you know see patients the rest of the day. My title was licensed acupuncturist liaison to the Office of the Army Surgeon General Pain Management. Well, so kind of a mouthful. Oh my gosh! Try to put that on a card. You would need both sides. <laughs> yeah, it's a long title, but they just they wanted uh, one person who could represent all of the acupuncturists, and there were about twenty or less of us at the time. And I enjoyed working with my colleagues. So we would be communicating by sometimes by phone. Zoom didn't, wasn't really a thing then, <laughs> mostly by email. And we'd be sharing documents and revising stuff back and forth or having conversations and really doing great work. And there were people in the team whose their strength was, was really being able to, one of our team members, uh, Jennifer, her strength was really being able to understand all the legal language. And when you're reading through all the standards in the military document standards, so she could just really read through that. And then I mentioned Sandra, the, our program analyst who worked at MedCom. She did this for all kinds of programs. That was just part of her job. She, she had worked at National Institute of Health before. And I've connected with her since I left the Madigan job because she's also a military spouse. So we connected again when I was living in Tennessee this last time. And we did interview series that we have on the Hospital Handbook Project now that's called Basics of Being an Employee in a Medium to Large Healthcare System. <laughs> so it was great to work with these people who and just try to bring out their strengths and what they brought to that. And we worked with code. We got to get to know our coders at the different systems well. And then people who were like coders of coders, like the people who really could tie things together and knew more how to connect the program analyst stuff to the coding and documentation. And it was a really intense experience, but I was fighting for us to remain professionals in the system and to show like, hey, we are professionals. And then, so, you know, I learned a lot of things and I did have to leave that job in July of 2014, because my husband got promoted. And what that meant was that he had to leave right away and go to a leadership school. And then he was going to be at sea for three to four years. And I had just come back from maternity leave for about a month or six weeks when we got this news about his promotion, which is great. So I'd gone back to my command and said, this is what's going on. I need to either work part-time or job share because the kids aren't allowed to be at daycare for more than 10, 10 hours a day. And with the commute, it was hard to do that. So I need to work less hours. And they're like, they weren't able to do that. So I had to say no to that job. It was hard. I thought that was going to be my dream job. But I think you mentioned we have different things mm -hmm. that lead us to different paths in life. I think the author Stephen Pressfield writes about this in- Oh my gosh, yes. The War of Art. The War of Art. It is one of my favoritest books in the world. Oh, yeah. With the shadow careers. and How did you come across The War of Art? <laughs> well, I was going to write this book with a whole bunch of colleagues, right? The Hospital Handbook. That turned out to be way too ambitious of a project. And I'll get more into that later. As part of that learning how to write a book, I started following different mm -hmm. writers in the online space, like Joanna Penn with the Creative Pen, and I came across Stephen Pressfield's work, and he writes so concisely, but so powerfully. Yes, he does. Yeah. He's been at it a long time. Yes, and he writes about that. So you brought up a concept in that book, the shadow career. What's a shadow career? Oh, I can't describe it as well as he does. Nobody can. <laughs> but, <laughs> I know. No, I'm, I'm just kidding. I mean, of course, we can describe it in our own words, especially if we've had a shadow career. Well, so for me, in my belief system, I like, I'm always trying to follow 
where God is pointing me to. And where one door closes, another one opens, or sometimes you just have to nudge another door open and just try to listen to his voice in my heart and follow that, which is Mm. very challenging. And Stephen Pressfield talks about it as these shadow careers, like you think you're in this career that is just perfect for you and something happens and you go through some challenges or changes and then it leads you to something that actually is right for you. And then the Benedictine nun, um, Sister Joan Chittister, talks about it as like, there are just different careers for you or different jobs that are right for you at different times in your life. And the farther you get along in life, you just keep honing whatever that is by learning from the things that you've done before. That really makes sense to me, that there are things that we do at one point, and it could be just exactly right for us at that point. Mm -hmm. And then it's time to do something else. Or the Steve Pressfield idea, as I understand, I've got a slightly different thought about it, which is it's the thing we do that we think we should do, but it's not our true calling. Maybe our family approves of it. Maybe our society approves of it. Our friends approve of it. We approve of it, but it's not our true work. Mm -hmm. And our true work might be something different. Yes. So I left the job at Madigan, and I didn't forget the work that we did there. And then it would have been so much easier if something had existed in the civilian sector that I could have just called or messaged and said, hey, how do you do this in your system? Have you dealt with these metrics? What clinical metrics are you using? Like just some sort of group or something where I could just talk to people from multiple systems and get their feedback. And that did not exist at that time. That's right, because you hadn't been around to do it. And I didn't want to do it. I thought somebody else could do that, right? That's right. This is somebody else's job. I'm busy and someone else is probably smarter anyway. So how come they're not doing it? Someone else could do it better. Yeah. Someone else with more experience and more degrees or more someone who's also a physician or something. My husband was at sea and I had a baby and a five-year-old. This could not possibly be my job. (laughs) How could this be my job? Right. I had a friend and who'd call every once in a while who's also an acupuncturist in a hospital system. And I said to her, I'm like, if I bring this up five more times, I'm just going to have to start on it. (laughs) So that did happen. And I started on it. It was one of those things where like, if I'm doing it even just five hours a month or five hours a week, I'm making more progress than it not existing at all. Mm -hmm. So, but before I started on the hospital handbook project, I had brought these issues to NCCAOM. And I said, hey, you know, it'd be great to have a civilian standard for how to hire acupuncturists into the system. And they said, okay, gathers people together. So I got to be on that task force that was in 2015. And they published in 2016, basically how to hire and credential acupuncturists in the system document. And then a couple of years after that, because they'd also been working on the Bureau of Labor and Statistics Standard Occupational Code, which is huge for being able to work in any kind of healthcare system to have a standard occupational code. So you need to have a code? Is that it to be able to work in one of these systems? Need to have it, but it makes it so much easier Mm -hmm. because when I would go to the credentialing office, either at Madigan or somewhere else, they'd be like, do you have a standard occupational code? (laughs) Because if you do, then they can just use the data from that and write job description in a credentialing packet. Okay. But because we didn't, we had to do all this standards. What is the standard for your education, your board exam? all that other stuff. That's why we had to do all that other work because the VLS standard occupational code was in process, but it wasn't published. It didn't get published until 
the electronic version, I believe, was published in July of 2017. And then the print version, we were in the print version of the update for January 1st, 2018. So there's now actually a code for us. Yeah, I wrote it down in here. I'll find it for you if you want me to. But the idea was that when you have that code, what's really great about our code when they did all the data, because they're always collecting data, determine what are you a distinct profession. So thankfully, yes, we are a distinct profession. Not just are we a distinct profession, but we are a distinct profession in the health diagnosing practitioners category, which is very important. That means we are professionals, not technicians, and that we need a graduate degree or higher to do our work, which again, puts us in that category when it comes to hospital and healthcare systems as professionals, not technicians. That is a huge thing, isn't it? It's so big. Yeah. Because we can actually practice medicine that way. You can get use and get credit for evaluation and management codes because we do do evaluation and management So we should get credit for the work that we're doing. And so sometimes it's just like, we just have to show each other how to use those codes. Like when you're doing documentation, these are the elements that actually are related to this part of evaluation and management codes. So like when we were doing that work with the coders, that's what they would pull out. Like, oh, well, you actually have all these elements that you're doing. Like, why aren't you being more clear about that? We're like, oh, because we didn't know that language or we didn't know how that translated into their standardized language of coding, what they're looking for. So it seems to me that you have not only learned Chinese medicine, but you have learned how these healthcare systems function and kind of how they're put together. Mm -hmm. What's that game that I saw the kids play in Minecraft or something? Right. It's like you need some of this and you need some of that. And you put these things together and you get this other thing and you got to have one of those to get one of these. And there's this entire system that is used to talking to itself through codes and credentials and titles and things of that nature. And if you know that language and if you know like who needs to talk to who, then you can play in that world. Mm-hmm. But if you don't know that, oh my God, where would you start? Let's start with the Hospital Handbook Project, I hope. (laughs) All right. So tell us more about the Hospital Handbook Project. Sure. Well, I'll tell you the occupational code now that I found it. It's that. Oh, okay, great. 29-1291 acupuncturist. That's huge. And then the other huge thing about getting acupuncturists included in the languages in federal law Mm -hmm. that's actually happening right now is there's Duty Choose Bill, Acupuncture for Heroes, which is a federal legislation. It's an inclusion legislation to include acupuncturists as a recognized provider type in the Social Security Act so that we can be listed on there along with all the other providers. People who are on Medicare can get reimbursed for the work. So to be on that list, that federal list in the Social Security Act. So once when Judy chose bill or a version of her bill gets passed, then we can get be included on that list. And what that does is it makes our services as an acupuncturist, not just the procedure of acupuncture, but our services as an acupuncturist available to people who use Medicare for their health care. So for me and where I come from, this means that rural health clinics could more easily hire acupuncturists because they're dependent on Medicare and all hospitals are dependent on some form of 
Medicare reimbursement. So a lot of programs for acupuncturists in hospitals started out with philanthropic funding. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes they still can get that philanthropic funding, but they've had to transition to other forms of reimbursement and revenue to keep the programs going. Or sometimes they're seeing, ideally, your program would can be seen as a cost savings because so like Alina Health, they have published some research about how acupuncture, their inpatient acupuncture service line has actually saved them money because acupuncture helps decrease pain, improve sleep and improve recovery so that patients, when they're doing an inpatient stay, once they're, if they receive acupuncture as part of that, they're less likely to be readmitted within 30 days. And Medicare actually has a system set up. So if you're readmitted within 30 days, the system gets fined for that readmission. But children's hospitals, a lot of programs are philanthropic, but a lot of children going to hospitals, they're eligible for Medicare and Medicaid, like 50 to 60% or more of those patients rely on Medicare for their services. So if the hospital can write off their acupuncture services instead of just writing it off as charitable care, but be able to receive some reimbursement. Now, Medicare isn't known for like reimbursing like really, really high, but it is some form of reimbursement for the hospital so that they can shuffle that money around and hopefully be more likely to hire acupuncturists. And the Social Security Act also funds uh, residency programs in hospitals. So wouldn't it be cool to have a acupuncture residency program? a little more normalized in hospitals. Two basic misconceptions stand in the way of people feeling comfortable using Chinese herbal medicine, even as they are feeling more positive about acupuncture. They are concerned about safety as herbal medicine is an unregulated industry and feel herbs are not effective to treat most conditions. Blue Poppy is committed to meeting all FDA safety regulations, All of their herbal products contain minimal or no filler to maximize potency and efficiency. Their granules are carefully manufactured in GMP-certified facilities, and every batch is tested multiple times for pesticides, heavy metals, and microbial content at the manufacturer and by SGS Laboratory, a Swiss certification and inspection company. For over 20 years, Blue Poppy has made quality, and safety manufacturing standards their biggest priority, resulting in exceptionally effective herbal formulas. Their years of experience provide you with the best possible herbs so your patients have the best possible outcomes. With free shipping and free dropship service on orders over $50, Blue Poppy should be your favorite place to shop for herbs. Use the code CHI2024 to receive 10% off Blue Poppy products on your next order. So this would be people after they've graduated from school, they could do a residency in a hospital. In theory. I mean, you'd have to have the program set up, but if you, Mm -hmm. one of the biggest barriers to being able to set up these programs is having the funding to set it up. So, and CMS funds like 80 or 90% of the funding for all kinds of residency programs for all clinicians, mostly physicians, but. Yeah. Now you said that They have found that acupuncture helps with reducing pain. It helps with sleep, tends to improve outcomes in general, keeps people from not having to be readmitted. Is this research that they've done or is this just like data that people who pull codes and pull numbers and do administration and look to see how efficient things are? Is that where this is coming from? There's been research published out of the Alina Health System, Jeff Dusak and Rachel Riverd, and uh, they've published at least one article about how 
their inpatient acupuncture service was a cost savings and they kind of go into how they did the data for that. That was a big thing when that first of those series of articles was published. I mean, I'm not a researcher, but working with all that data is pretty complex. So I'm just excited that people can, that they had the researchers who knew how to do that and be able to get it published. Well, it's a great answer to a question. Hey, what does acupuncture cost? Well, actually, acupuncture will save you. Yes. It won't cost you. It will save you. Mm -hmm. So tell me more about this handbook. I mean, who might use it? So the hospital practice handbook project for acupuncturists and their hospital sponsors is a community resource project. It's a not-for-profit community resource project, which is really a a living handbook. Mm -hmm. It's like open source code? No. It's mostly about being able to connect to people who are doing the work. Mm -hmm. And then kind of my job has been to try to write down the stuff that is shareable and publishable as much as I can. So there's always more work that I could do. And it is limited by time, resources, and funding. (laughs) So there's plenty of work to do. But at the end of the day, we have like, because you'd asked me about my microphone. And one of the things that I've had to learn with the project is like, well, how are people consuming information? So I started with it with a, you know, in 2015, 2016 with Facebook group and a blog. And then it kind of morphed into like, well, we need a way to also bring it. How do we help fund and pay for outgoing costs? So we have a website that also helps with that. So people can buy me virtual coffee while I'm working on stuff and help with some of the outgoing costs. So it's, it's not terribly expensive of a project, but it does, if we had funding for like $10,000 a year, that would be a huge thing. I've been kind of working on a budget. We've been consistently underfunded for the whole time. So, so is this donation based right now? Yeah, people can donate through the website, like the virtual coffee. But we also, at this point, we have subscription-based services. So like I have some mini courses, but they don't have continuing education credits associated with it because I don't have the funding to do the, to submit for CEUs at this time. But like how to use a pain scale, like how to use a validated metric in your chart note. So, and we talk about how to use the defense and veterans pain rating scale because that's a free pain scale to use. Some metrics, you have to pay the researcher who created it to use the metric, but the DVPRS, it's been validated. It's a validated tool. And then we kind of go into like, what are validated tools and how to use them in your chart note? And it's by the government. So it's they're funded by taxpayers. So it's free to use. We also have another one on also about pain management on, you know, how to do just a review of a medication review and recognizing which ones are opioids and what, what are some red flags and orange flags if the person's being prescribed opioids as well as benzodiazepines and being able to recognize the common names and then the, the brand names of those things so you can recognize that as a red flag and how, making referrals and that kind of thing. So we have like standalone resources like that. But then I get a lot of questions about like, how do I get into hospital-based practice? How do I get my foot in the door? And I've been answering that for so fairly often for a few years. So I created an ebook and a workbook called First Steps. So First Steps for the student or integrative health practitioner, acupuncturist who's interested in hospital-based practice. And it goes through like, what are the minimum requirements and what are the recommended knowledge, skills, and abilities and to get you ready to potentially work in hospital-based practice. So we have resources for interested people, interested in the work and students. And then The bulk of the work is for people who are in hospital-based practice. So one of those resources is a new hospital employee. So from your offer of employment into five plus years down the road, people can go back to it anytime. And that talks about like 
hiring and credentialing what the current guidelines are now, because we did that with NCCOM in 2016, but things have changed. So like, what are the current guidelines and resources for doing that? And then we also talk about like, if you're starting a program, for what kind of program you're starting, what are some metrics to look into? Here are people who are doing similar work. So like connecting to people who are doing work in children's hospitals, because that's a really specific type of work. So I can tell you some basics, but you're going to want to connect to these people who are doing it this way and kind of talk with them about how they're doing that. So the Hospital-Based Practice Handbook Project has become this kind of community sourcing that I wanted when I was in hospital-based practice that you can go in and then connect with people who are doing similar work instead of trying to find them all on your own. So it's kind of a one-stop shop. Yeah. The vision is for it to be a one-stop shop on licensed acupuncturists working in hospital and healthcare system-based practice, our employment practices and program standards. Because what at the end of the day, what I want is I want that working in that setting, whether it's whether you're working in a county clinic or hospice or in a physical hospital itself, inpatient or outpatient, for that to be employment opportunity possibility for acupuncturists. And a lot of the barriers to that are there's just a lot of misinformation in the hospital and healthcare system community about how to hire us and that we are professionals, not technicians. When they hire us as professionals, they can capture data, metrics, and money differently than if they hire us as technicians. And then that helps with their bottom line. That's really interesting. So it's to their benefit that we are professionals, not technicians. I would suspect it's to our benefit as well that we're professionals and not technicians because Mm -hmm. pay scale is going to be better and we probably have a whole lot more freedom to make the decisions that we want to make and work in ways that we think are appropriate for the good of our patient. Yes. And when you're working in a hospital-based practice, you're never completely autonomous, even as a physician, there's always a standard of practice and a line of management. But as acupuncturists, by state law, in the majority of states, we are licensed independent practitioners, which is a licensed state law term. Mm-hmm. No one's independent in hospitals. You're always working to a standard and working to your mission, whatever the mission of the clinic is. And then you have to be able to be able to do peer record review, which is like You always want to have in a hospital system at least two acupuncturists, ideally more, but at least two. And then you're able to look at each other's records and say, okay. So in peer record review, you're looking at a colleague's documentation to make sure the documentation is complete and then make sure that they didn't like really miss a big red flag. So they're doing work that is safe. So peer record review is part of this process called ongoing professional practice evaluation which is regulated or looked at by quality assurance groups such as the Joint Commission, which used to be called JCO, which is hospitals are always looking at like safety. How are we looking at safety and quality assurance? And so like the credentialing process is a vetting process. And then the beyond getting hired and credentialed, you have to go through focused professional practice evaluation where someone is kind of following you when you first start to make sure you're you're doing. An ongoing professional practice evaluation is usually like this peer record review where someone is reviewing your documentation, making sure like, you, you know, did you sign your chart note? Did you make appropriate referrals? Did you follow the practice standard? But then you have to, if there's a practice standard, you have to know what that practice standard is, that kind of stuff. Where do you find time for all this? I love it. Because it sounds like a lot. <laughs> it is a lot. And my husband's been moving. We move every few years. And so we just moved to from Tennessee to San Diego. 
And so I would like to get, get back into clinical practice, but especially when we moved to Tennessee, so we just moved from Tennessee, we were there for about three and a half years. I was like, well, let's focus on getting the kids through school and their health stuff. And then I'll just focus on trying to get as much of the hospital handbook project work done as I can. And then maybe it'll be at a point where someone else can take over. <laughs> so I had just made that a focus and then the pandemic happened and I had less time to work on it because I was also teaching my kids. So it's kind of one of those things like I really enjoy being able to help colleagues and start their programs or work through some issues in their programs or connect to others who are either have similar issues or other people who've been like, oh, well, I had that issue. Let me share with you the solution. Then we can all learn from each other. So originally I thought it'd be just a book that we'd all write together and it'd be done. But what I've learned over time is there are some things that can get written down and they're more evergreen, but a lot of things change. And as a professionals, we want to be part of this continuous learning, continuous improvement process. And that's what the Hospital Hamburg Project, because it's a community, helps us do. We're learning from each other. We're practicing research literacy. Like a colleague can be like, hey, check out this link to this research. This is really relevant to my oncology practice. And then, okay, well, some of that stuff was pretty technical. Can you tell us more about what some of those things are and how you feel about that? And so then you're practicing research literacy, right? Or what's really cool is some people like, hey, my paper is out there. <laughs> like, oh, that's so cool. Congratulations on being published. Let's share that. So it was just the idea is to keep us from working in silos, to be able to share that information. Because when you're in hospital-based practice, you don't have time to tell people about what you're doing. You're just really focused on the work. And so right now I'm at a time or have been in a time in my life and where I have the time to work on this. So I'm doing this for my community. So that whole service to others, it's, I enjoy it and I know it's going to help others and definitely potentially help my profession as a whole so that hospital-based practice and healthcare system-based practice jobs are a possibility for new graduates and those of us who've already graduated if we want to work there. I think we need people working in all different kinds of settings. Like Agreed. And we have lots of different kinds of people with many kinds of temperaments and many different kinds of interests. You have hoed a tough row. This is not an easy area to work in, especially if you don't speak the lingo and if you don't understand the ways that things work. I, I was joking with you a few minutes ago about, oh, this is like an open source. It's like open source code, but it is like open source code. And there's aspects of it that are very foundational and key. And then there's things that are new and being updated and people can plug in and help with the areas that they have some interest or expertise in. This is how open source works. Okay. And I mean, the software that runs most servers on the internet, Linux, is an open source code. It's really interesting. Mm. Yes. Now, if people wanted to be helpful, or if they are listening to this and they're thinking, I would like to contribute, what kinds of help would be useful to you? It depends on what they're able to, where they're coming from, from wanting to contribute. Like we definitely need financial support. So like we have that option for virtual coffee on the website, but we're also looking for funders to help fund. Uh, like we have an issues in hospital-based practice webinar series. People can spot me. We have space for sponsors for that. I am right now in the 
process negotiation with a 501c3 to be do fiscal aid sponsorship be part of that 501c3 so that in the future when people are supporting it has that tax status mm. but that, that is a long process the contract negotiation stuff so i don't know when that will be finished but this is definitely nonprofit work it's just because we move every few years i can't set up a nonprofit in a state and then move in three years and then set it up in another state. So it's better to just work with a established 501c3. That makes a lot of sense. Stop recreating the wheel. And then if someone is working in a hospital-based practice or about to start, like they're a new employee and they want to contribute or be part of it, just can send me a message by the contact page on the website about what they're thinking about and mm-hmm. how they want to contribute and we'll find a way for that. And if there were students who have this as an interest, maybe they're still in school, but they're coming toward the end, they're looking for a project, they're looking for something to do. Would this be an area where they could contribute and get some educational credit as well? Yeah, I don't know. We'd have to probably work with the school to figure out what they need for educational credit, or what the paperwork is for that. But always use volunteers. And we have a resource for people to just get kind of get oriented that first steps resource, but there's more project opportunities. And then is the in the community, we have students and prospective practitioners who are interested in the work, people who've worked in hospital based practice, people who've left hospital based practice and still have wisdom to share, and researchers. So it's cool to be able to connect the researchers to people who are doing the work. And then the people who are doing the work, like, hey, here's a researcher who really understands acupuncture, because we don't have a lot of acupuncture researchers in our field. We have a few. I've had some on the show. Yes. And they're amazing, wonderful, brilliant people. Yeah. Yeah. So where would people go on the web to find you? The Hospital Handbook Project website is thehospitalhandbook.com. Awesome. We'll make sure that there's plenty of information on the show notes page as well. Thank you. Megan, anything else that you'd like to share before we wind it down for today? I think my grandparents, a different set of grandparents, my Kingsley grandparents would say, just because something is common doesn't mean that it's right. Mm. So I often have heard their voice echoing in my head. What I try to tell people when they're first starting hospital-based practice is don't try to fight all the fights at once. Get a mentor, learn what fights are to be, and then just kind of write down what it is that you're noticing. Eventually, you'll get used to what you're noticing that doesn't feel right. And so write it down and then find a time to do those fights. Great advice. Well, thank you so much for sitting down for a conversation today. Thank you, Michael. My pleasure. As a solar practitioner running my own business, I did not realize the complexity and the knowledge required to interface and work with a large system like a hospital. That it requires not just an understanding of how we practice our medicine, but additionally, a focus on how to work with other professionals in a cooperative way and able to speak the language and have an eye for how to work with the system itself. It's not for everybody, just like private practice is not for everybody. And I appreciate Megan's skill, understanding, and dedication to helping those in our profession who have an interest in working with large institutions. If this is your cup of tea, then visit the show notes page as we have plenty of helpful links from Megan that will aid you in navigating the institutional world. And beyond that, 
visit Megan's website at thehospitalhandbook.com. And if you've benefited from what you've learned here today, please buy her a cup of coffee and support her work. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community. Mm -hmm.